Hello, my friends. Today we are talking to Dave Singleton, the CTO at Stripe, and we discuss the operating principles that have led to their success and growth, why Stripe views themselves as an infrastructure company, and valuable tips for running a hybrid remote culture. All of this right here, right now on the Modern CTO Podcast. Here we go. This is the Modern CTO Podcast. David. Hey, Joel. It's great to meet you. Dude, great to meet you. You have got to be like one of the most interesting people we're meeting just now for the first time, but I've been reading your blog for the past several hours and it's unbelievable. Oh, wow. <laughs> it's, uh, it's a bit of a random assortment of stuff. Um, I, I like to think that I have a wide range of interests. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you had everything from like you built a self-driving RC car. That's right. Tell me about that. Um, that was really fun. So um, I, you probably remember um, this was this was a long time ago. This was before kind of self-driving cars were a thing. I mean, they were a thing inside research labs or whatever. And there was a Stanford machine learning course, um, which I happened to take on the weekend um, uh, over the course of like several weeks. And at the very end of that course, they showed a video of uh, one of the world's first, I guess, like neural network driven self-driving cars, which was out of uh, CMU in the in the 90s, I guess, or maybe even earlier. Um, and they, they basically said, hey, we've taught you all the techniques to, to build one of these things in this course. So I got pretty excited about that. Um, and not actually at the time owning a real car <laughs> to turn into a self-driving car. Um, I bought literally the cheapest uh, radio controlled car you could get um, and stuck a mobile phone on the back and built a, a system where it would stream the video frames to the computer. And then um, I, I wired up the radio controller to a little Arduino board and I could drive it with the arrow keys on my computer. Um, and then that gave labels to train uh, the, the algorithm. And then I trained it um, and uh, then the car would drive itself. And this was pretty miraculous, I thought. I mean, I was pretty shocked that it was possible myself. Um, and the thing that's really cool is that you could build, you could rebuild the track on the fly and it would like follow um, uh, you know, the corners wherever they were. So that post was actually fun because uh, it got picked up on Hacker News and got a bunch of attention. I got invited to a couple of conferences to talk about it as like the fun side topic, um, which was cool. So. Yeah, I was building self-driving cars before they were cool, but only radio control ones. That's amazing. Have you always been interested in the hardware and the software side of things? Yeah, I pretty much have. I, I've really, I've always been interested in building stuff. Um, and I think, you know, when I was a little kid, I was really into Lego and like getting the, the complicated Lego and making it into, into new things. Um, and then when I got into software, I got very excited about how kind of creative and limitless um, building stuff with software was. So I've always had a passion for putting together um, software systems with things that you could really like feel and touch in the real world. But how do you become such an amazing person? This I'm like, this topic of this episode's now. So like you, you do cooking, you have such a wide array of, of interest. And so like, do you just go with the flow and then you just choose to document stuff sometimes? Do you have like a recurring event in your calendar where you, you make one of these blog posts every month and you just find something creative to do for it. Like, how do you do that? Yeah, I mostly go with the flow. So I, I'll typically have um, uh, 
don't know, five or 10 ideas that are kicking around in my, in my head that I want to spend some time building. And to be clear, none of them usually with a particular, you know, purpose in mind, but just because it's like an idea that, that seems uh, pretty interesting from my perspective. They'll kind of like niggle away at me. So I, I usually start working on them when I kind of get frustrated with myself that I haven't already done so. Um, and I like to build stuff. I like to, I like to write such that it shares the experience with other people so that they could have the same enjoyment that I had in, in doing the thing. Um, and actually it's been really fun. Uh, since I joined Stripe, I think I've been more intentional about my writing. We have a, we have a really kind of vibrant, I think, writing culture at Stripe. And so I think I've been more diligent about taking side projects I've worked on and writing them up so that others could learn from them. Um, since I've been immersed in this culture, which has been great, but it is definitely something I've done for a while. And, and to your point, like with the, with docs and stuff like writing culture in your docs, like I've used the Stripe documentation as examples for like the standard since the day I found Stripe. Um, I was looking for alternatives to like authorize.net and this was like way, way back in the day. Um, and I came across, you know, this basic couple page site and I, like all these doc, the docs are so easy to read and it made my life so much easier. And then going forward, I just, every company I talked with, cause I had a, uh, for, for about 10 years, I had a app consultancy. So I just built applications for people for hire. And I would always just point to the Stripe docs, be like, this is, this is the standard. This is how good the docs have to be. Cool. Well, thank you for saying so. I mean, <laughs> kind of like any product that you work on, when we look at our docs, we still see so many ways that we would like to um, improve them. And we keep them moving along, I think quite quickly. I think the critical thing that we do at Stripe that is different than how some other companies treat documentation is we really view our documentation experience as part of the product. So, um, in fact, this is a lot of like what brought me to Stripe in the first place. So I happened to build a little side project along the lines of, uh, you know, the, what we were talking about before, which was a, uh, an international group SMS app. Um, and it was actually quite expensive to run. I was just using my own credit card for it. Um, and so it became pretty critical to integrate payments. And I actually put it off for quite a while. Just like, oh, that's going to be really hard. But I knew about Stripe. Stripe was relatively early at the time. I knew about Stripe. And one weekend, I sat down to integrate payments. Um, and it was a really, really quick experience. It took me just a couple of hours. And then uh, people started paying for the group SMSs that they were sending. It was pretty miraculous. Money started flowing in very quickly. Um, and the reason that I was uh, that, that that experience was so productive was number one, we do work really hard to make sure that the API is accessible um, and intuitive and easy to get started with. But really, back then, I saw all of these touches in the docs that continue to be important to us today. So, for instance, um, if you're reading the Stripe documentation and you're signed into your Stripe account. The examples that you see um, have your API keys in them, so you can co copy paste them and use them right away. Um, if you're looking at our API reference, we'll give you like sample requests and responses. And the, the data in the responses, if relevant, actually comes from your own account. And that makes it so much easier to understand what this thing is about. So if I've provisioned a bunch of products in my account, and then I'm looking at the, uh, the product list API response, and it's, it's my stuff, it makes so much more sense. And so we do exactly the same product development loop in our documentation where we'll show it to users, we'll observe them using it, what are the pain points, we'll get their feedback and really, really listen to it. Just the same product development loop that we use in all the rest of the product. And I think that's not a consistent practice across the industry. Um, I think increasingly folks 
recognize that it, it might be something worth investing in. But sometimes software teams, and I've certainly worked in software teams before that, that were set up like this, think of like the product and then there's like this separate group that will take care of like writing it up and putting docs somewhere else. And you really have to think about them as part of the same journey, especially when you're building um, an API based or infrastructure product. So how did you meet the people at Stripe? Well, like I said, I, um, I built this uh, side project that, that used Stripe. So I was kind of um, intrigued um, and, and started really following what was going on here. Um, sometime in early 2017, um, I actually just happened to drop an email to Patrick, who's our CEO, to actually ask for some advice. Um, and that blossomed into a conversation. Um, and I got to, to really understand what was going on at Stripe and in particular, that was a phase of our growth where we were really starting to think hard about how to um, distribute engineering around the world and, and not just in San Francisco. And that's something that I spent a lot of time uh, doing before um, and certainly have a passion for. Um, and I think realizing that a lot of the things that I really enjoyed myself in the product were, were not accidental, but very deliberate. Um, and that there was a real culture here that, that, that creates those kind of experiences got me pretty excited. And then, you know, the, uh, the idea that maybe I had something to give was, was what eventually brought me to Stripe. And it, it was a, a wonderful experience because it really did start just as a series of conversations. And then, and then it turned into a, a case where I was kind of like, that is where I have to be. Um, and I am really having a blast here and really enjoying it. Yeah. Well, it's an awesome company as far as like the brand and the sentiment. Like I've never met anybody who doesn't like Stripe. Everyone's like pro we're pro Stripe world here. Well, thanks for saying so. So I was reading about how you guys look at yourself as an infrastructure company. You know, can you explain a little bit more about that? Sure. I mean, we, so we built economic infrastructure for the internet, but really at its heart, what that means is we're building tools for businesses to be able to do things that, that otherwise they might not be able to do or otherwise would require a tremendous amount of uh, investment on, on their side. So I really think of what we're doing as it's infrastructure, but really we're looking to provide engineering leverage to all the businesses that build on Stripe. Um, this obviously got started with our payments API that I already talked about. Um, but today we have a, a real kind of set of composable economic infrastructure that solves a, a wide range of problems that, that our users run into. And the way that we've got there is by doing a little bit of what I talked about before. So we really, really focus on understanding our users well, um, which means we're always asking for feedback. So we, we had the original payments API and the, the early Stripe team did a tremendous amount of work um, with the early users to really make sure that we were providing something that added value right away. Um, that was a really intuitive experience to integrate. Um, and that was done through sitting with users, watching them going through uh, the process of integrating. Anytime that we saw friction or them feel like they made a mistake, that's not their mistake, that's our mistake. We need to design the system so that it's, it's super intuitive to use. And so we've had this culture from very early on of paying a tremendous amount of attention, not only to what do users think of the product, but what are the problems that they really have and that they're really seeking to solve? So that's a question that you'll hear people ask each other at Stripe a lot, which is, what are you really trying to do to users? What are you really trying to do? And then when we see patterns across those business problems that they're running into, that's our invitation to build the next layer of our economic infrastructure. So maybe a good example of this is Stripe Connect. 
Connect is our product for platforms and marketplaces. Um, and the ideas behind Connect came from working very early on with um, a wide variety of early stage companies that were using the payments API, but were actually trying to build these multi-sided um, uh, marketplace products. And there's a tremendous amount of heavy lifting you have to do to build a product like that. Um, you have to do uh, identity verification. You have to know that the people in the businesses are who they say they are. Um, there's a lot of just uh, plumbing to do to make sure that funds can flow in the right ways and so on and so forth. And what we could see was that many of these uh, Stripe users, these businesses building on the API, were having to solve those same problems over and over again. Um, and when we see that happening and we realize that's not the, that's not the core business, that's not the reason that they started the company in the first place, that's a really great opportunity for us to build the next layer in our infrastructure. And that it was the genesis of Stripe Connect. Um, and Connect, of course, has gone on to be um, uh, a tremendous engine in, in our growth um, uh, because we, we work with platforms and they bring many other businesses onto their platforms for the particular uh, you know, problem that they solve for, then those businesses have a relationship with Stripe potentially as well. And we can offer them more and more services so we can kind of run that loop over and over again. And that theme of how we figure out what infrastructure to build goes through every capability I think that we've built and every product that we have. So if you think about Radar, which is our solution for, for payments fraud, again, that comes from exactly the same loop of what are the problems you're running into? What is the work that you're doing to solve for these? So we've got a part of that product Radar for, Radar for fraud teams that enables, um, it enables you, number one, not to have to build tools to, to enable a, a fraud operations team and to enable a fraud operations team that could be much smaller than it otherwise would be so you can actually take that energy and put it into the thing that you really set up the company for in the first place. Um, and so that's very much how I think about the business. It's how do we enable the companies that build with Stripe and on Stripe to have a lot of engineering leverage for themselves. Yeah, and it's used for everything from like complicated things uh, to very simple things. For example, my wife uses Stripe for like she refinishes cabinets and that's how she gets her payments that you know we use it for the podcast and the advertisers and it's just this amazingly simple system to it was so cool that she could just you know what she got furloughed during covid mm -hmm. from from her job and she's like what am i going to do for money and i was like well your hobby is refinishing furniture why don't you go do that and so she got a stripe account ran some facebook ads got some people and started a little business now she's doing like cabinet every week and uh, it was just, it was the fact there was no friction, like she just did it. That, that is an awesome story. And I mean, I'm delighted to hear that, that we've been able to help her. Um, that story is very consistent across so many Stripe users. Um, and I think that the principle behind that is, I've just talked a lot about how we're building infrastructure that, you know, as I was speaking, you're probably thinking about large companies. Um, and we do serve a lot of really large companies and multinationals and public companies. Um, and the, but the principles that we have and how we serve them, another principle we have is we really want to make sure that everything works really well in a self-service mode um, and is universally available. So we really see a lot of what we do is arming upstarts. We, we're literally seeking to help some companies get started that otherwise wouldn't get started and helping companies grow in ways that they otherwise wouldn't be able to. So COVID's been a, a really interesting experience for us. I mean, obviously, I have a tremendous amount of empathy for a lot of businesses out there that are going through a very difficult period of trying to respond to their the demand drying up in, in many cases. Um, 
But it's been a very energizing time in some ways at Stripe because we have been doing a lot to help businesses like your wife's actually come online for the first time. Um, and the self-service nature of our tools makes that you know, really, really uh, quick to, to do and, and makes it possible for it to happen at all. So for instance, um, uh, there's a company called uh, Rui Chevu, which is France's largest B2B farmers market. Um, and they're now using Stripe post COVID to sell goods directly to consumers online. Um, there's a Mexican supermarket chain called Mercado Hidalgo um, who are using Stripe to support online orders. Uh, or, you know, some of these users will have had a relationship with Stripe already or maybe come to us through our sales team, but the vast majority actually just come in self-serve and find that you know, they can experience the documentation as a product that they talked about and get an integration up and running. Um, and it's, it's really exciting to be able to power that kind of uh, innovation and enable those kind of businesses. We're kind of dancing around like principles. You mentioned a little bit of ownership earlier where, you know, you don't say it's the customer's fault. We take it upon ourselves. It's our problem. Mm -hmm. Did, does Stripe have some solid values or principles? Yeah. So we have a set of operating principles. Um, and I think that this is also, um, they're, they're very deep in our culture. So um, I know a lot of companies have principles, but at Stripe, we really do talk about them a lot and live by them. Um, for instance, we have an emoji for each operating principle, and you'll often see people on Slack when they see someone doing something that corresponds to one of the, the principles, like kind of saying, well done, that, that's like that principle in action, and I'd like to talk about a few of them. Um, I think that the most um, consistently cited operating principle and the one that drives so much of our work is that we put users first. Um, so I think I've talked about that quite a bit already, but it really does mean um, seeking to have very deep conversations with our users and understand what they really need from us and to use that to drive our own thinking and prioritization. Um, and when, when you see that in action at Stripe, it's, it's, it's quite striking. So I'm responsible for engineering and design. And in design, we have uh, a user experience research group. But I mean, truly at Stripe, almost every product manager, engineering manager, and many of our engineers are themselves doing user research, right? So we, we seek to empower everyone to talk deeply with users and understand what are the actual problems so that we, we build the right solutions. And that works inside the company as well. So um, we build a lot of stuff for our users outside of the metaphorical four walls, but also we build infrastructure to power all the products that we're building for them. And the mentality that we take when we're developing and thinking about infrastructure inside of Stripe is who are the users? They're other Stripe engineers. So it's even easier to talk to them and really deeply understand what, what they need. And how do we make sure that we don't just provide a solution and say, hey, you know, good luck with that. But we really kind of seek to understand what do you need today and where are you going? And then we evolve our infrastructure like that. So that's how that operating principle um, really applies. Um, Another operating principle we have is to be meticulous about the foundations. So if you think about it, economic infrastructure is a very serious business. Um, uh, I'm sure your wife's business depends on being able to have people pay her for the cabinets. Um, and very, very many um, Stripe users uh, absolutely depend on us for their ability to serve their customers and also to pay their employees. Um, so we take it very seriously. Um, and it's important that we are very clear thinking about what are the foundations, where are the places that we have to apply significant rigor and to, to really develop in that way. 
we think about that again, both for our infrastructure and for how we design the company, uh, because we want to make sure that we're building systems that, that are durable um, and will mean that we can continue to serve our users very well for a long time. Um, but alongside that, um, we have another operating principle, which is to move with urgency and focus. So we really believe that one of the primary ways that we serve our users is by evolving our products as quickly as we can to serve the, the needs that they have that are new or emerging, especially as we've started to take um, Stripe all around the world and especially as events like COVID come along, it really is a, an important differentiator for us and also an important just thing that we want to do in the world that we can respond quickly to their needs. Um, and so that's why it's important that we can move with urgency and focus. And when I think about how that applies to uh, how we structure engineering, we put a lot of investment into developer productivity. So we think a lot about how um, Stripe can be a place where you can be more productive than at a tiny little startup because you don't have to kind of pull everything in yourself and stand it up yourself to, to make it work, but also more productive than at a really, really large company where there might be good infrastructure, but it's probably designed for relatively generic needs. So we build opinionated infrastructure for our engineers um, and really pay a lot of attention to the software development loop. So, you know, how can we accelerate the time between writing a change and seeing the results of the test that you run locally? How can we accelerate the time between finishing a change and having it deployed to production? So we do continuously deploy um, our API to production, which in the financial space is not necessarily like the normal way things are done. Um, we typically deploy our API about 20 times each business day. Um, and we can only do that through a huge amount of automated testing and automated deployment systems so that we uh, provide safety as, as we roll that stuff out. And that's why that operating principle kind of applies to, uh, to, to what we do. But we, we have others and we really think very hard about what the, the right principles are and we, we sort of like amplify them by how we work together, like I was saying in the beginning. No, that's really cool. You guys have a strong culture over there. I'm really curious. This is a little bit off topic, but um, what it's like you when you originally met them, you uh, sent an email off to the CEO asking for some advice. Is that like career advice or like technical problems advice or? Um, it's a good question. Uh, I think it was actually both um, because I think <laughs> I was I think I was asking for some advice that was probably framed as technical advice around a potential business thing that I might have wanted to start. That's pretty cool. I can only imagine the ideas you've got bouncing around up in that head after <laughs> after reading through your blog. You also have some some kids, right? That's right. I have two kids. They are six and about to turn four. I've got I've got two. I've got a little girl. She's about three years old, and then a boy who's about one. Awesome. I have girl boy in the same the same order. Oh, it's 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 she's doing that thing right now or he he like walks up to her and she just screams just because he touched her or he touched one of her <laughs> items. Uh, I think the bad news is that never goes away. <laughs> <laughs> no, but you can do creative things to distract them, like take your 3D printer and build them tic-tac-toe. That's amazing, like, by the way. That that was fun. That was not my idea. That was my daughter's idea. She she wanted to give uh, one of her friends a kind of like uh, homemade birthday present, um, and she just came to me one morning and said, "Daddy, please can we use the laser cutter to make this um, this present?" And I was kind of like, "Awesome, yes! Excuse to do my passion projects, to, which which is you know coming from helping my daughter." So it's fun when they come up with the ideas. 
So what is that printer? It was like a glow or it's something like that? It's a Glowforge, like yeah, yeah. And what, like, how does it work? What what type of 3D printer is it? It's So it's a laser cutter. It's not a 3D printer. Um, okay. So it is, uh, it's kind of like, I think, maybe one of the first consumer laser cutters. Um, and uh, it was originally kind of like a crowdfunding campaign that used Stripe. Um, I, I bought it before I joined Stripe. Um, but I've had a lot of fun... Uh, building stuff with it. And in particular, little software projects that, that actually generate designs. So for instance, uh, I built a sundial uh, template cutter, um, which you can use to build a sundial for your own garden if you like. Yeah, you had a lot of open source stuff there too. You can find out the, the details of it. No, I just think, I think it's fascinating. So this concept, I don't know much about the 3D printing world. So this laser cutter, where you put you put things in and it cuts it with the laser. I assume. Right. Like it, you used a, a, a slab of wood. You used like a, what did you do to make that? Uh, so yeah, you, you can buy like laser safe materials um, because oh. when you use the laser that gas fence off. So you want to be careful with what kind of plastics you're cutting and so forth, but you get flat pieces of material, wood, plastic, etc., cetera, uh, leather. Um, and you, you put it in, you use a piece of software to kind of configure where it's going to cut and where it's going to engrave. Um, and then it does its thing. That's so cool. So did you, did you find like an existing print for this uh, tic-tac-toe or? No, we designed that. We designed that ourselves. We, <laughs> we, uh, I got her to draw it on paper. Um, and then I uh, wrote, uh, I wrote a little Python uh, program to, to generate the, the SVG that, that was the template to cut it, which is fun. That is, so you used a Python program to generate the SVG. I did. Yeah. You could use a drawing a program, program, but it's actually yeah. a lot faster. And well, it's a lot faster for me personally uh, to write code to do stuff than use my, uh, you know, horrible art skills. Dude, you have good art skills. I saw that post about you drawing something every day for the month of February, I think. I did that. Yeah, that was fun. Yeah. I was like, I got some of my basic art skills from just whiteboarding. And then, you know, I would, I was whiteboarding early on. And then I said, I actually took like a, couple free courses online to learn how to draw better uh, because I wanted to draw my whiteboards better. But yeah, you've gotten, uh, you've got a pretty, pretty cool sense between your, you can tell a lot from someone by their photography and what they choose to draw. Um, I hope that <laughs> I'm really intrigued to know what you can tell by me. By the way, drawing is a really interesting topic because um, one of the things I talk about a lot with folks that I manage or mentor is kind of having a growth mindset. So really like believing that people can improve and change. Um, and when I was at school, I was terrible at art. I mean, it was the one subject where I would like fail, um, literally. Um, and I kind of had it in my head for years that I couldn't do art. Um, and it, it, I actually got back into art through computers because I used Photoshop to kind of make conceptual art album covers. This is like, I don't know, 99 or something. And realized, oh, wow, there's more to art than drawing. And there's more to art than what I did at school. Um, and I've actually, over the years, kind of gotten into drawing. And I mean, thank you for saying that. I, I still think I'm a kind of mediocre artist. But I certainly did not deserve to fail my art classes. Um, and uh, it just goes to show that any skill that you um, that you want to get better at, you probably can by, by just like believing that you can and putting in the effort. Yeah, that resiliency to go at it, have it not turn out the way you want, and then decide that, okay, you didn't get the results you wanted, but I'm going to do it again. 
and then I'm going to find a way to track improvement to help build confidence. And then I know if I just leverage compounding nature of time, this will improve over time. Totally. Because most people just give up. I was actually thinking a lot about this. I didn't, I didn't get into the personal development space or look into any of that stuff until my mom passed away a few years ago. And before then I was just kind of like, you know, going through life and then you get into the personal development space and you realize these concepts about growth and ownership. And then what happens is you go from being like a passive participant of life to like an active participant of life. And it's just, it's a, it's a way more rewarding way to live. So that's why I was so intrigued when I saw your blog and I saw the things that you were actively doing. And my, my thoughts were, I'm doing things like this, but I'm not documenting them. I mean, I, I document them when I take photos of them, but I don't reflect on them in a written sense. And so that's actually, it was, I, I was looking at that. And I said, is this something that I want to integrate into my goals next year? Cause I'm pretty strict about like picking three or four goals and then let, let that happen for the whole year. That, that is cool. I'm sorry to hear about your mom, by the way. Um, that is, that I think is a, a really important and, and valuable skill just to like decide that you're going to do something consistently and then work at it until you see where it goes. Um, and I think about that a lot in how we, how we kind of build the right development culture at Stripe as well. So um, it's very important to me that we are building an organization where there's a really strong learning environment. Um, it's, it's both what I personally have found keeps me very excited and engaged about working in a larger team. And it's also very consistently what we see and hear when we talk to Stripes and also people who are thinking about joining Stripe, that it's, it's something that, that, that really helps people um, feel like it's the place to be because you are developing yourself as well as having a huge impact for our users. Um, and our, our very inquisitive culture and uh, our culture of writing and reflecting on work we've done, I think is very powerful to that end, um, as, as you were just saying, Joel. Um, and I think it is a, there's a real um, inclination at Stripe to study what we do and how we have done it and how to make it better at every stage. So another one of our operating principles, well, maybe two that are kind of related, um, one of them is um, to acknowledge that we haven't won yet. So, you know, while we've built a bunch of stuff that um, is definitely having a good impact for users, there's a tremendous amount more to do. Um, and so it's important that we stay humble and stay curious. Um, and that, that's one of the ways that I think about that operating principle. And another one is edit the company. So, I mean, Stripe is growing relatively quickly. Um, I think that there can be a, there can be a kind of, failure mode or slight dysfunction in companies that do grow very quickly, which is, you know, things, the ways you worked, the culture and so forth are a certain way when you're small. And it probably changed a lot over the early days, but if you grow quickly, it suddenly kind of inflates that and makes it just the way things are. And it's very difficult to change them. We believe very deeply that while we don't think that we're doing things, you know, completely terribly, there's so many ways that we could be working more effectively, both with ourselves and for our users. So really preserving the, the humility and acknowledging that we should work hard to change the way we work to make it better um, is I think quite a valuable part of the culture here and also helps feed into the personal learning environment. Um, so I've really enjoyed 
both working in that um, environment and then also you know, working hard to amplify it. Um, examples of how we do that are, we're very deliberate about development, by which I mean like people learning new skills or doing things that they want to do that they haven't done before that have a lot of impact for our users, and also mentorship. So creating connections within Stripe between folks who um, have a certain skill set or have ex experienced a certain set of things with the folks that want to learn from that experience. Um, and it, it, it really does, I think, create a very palpable feeling that, that everyone is on a path where they're kind of bettering them themselves as well as uh, having a big impact for users. Do you have any ideas, and this is, again, it's pretty, it's pretty far out there, so not to put you on the spot, but do you have any ideas of how we could take these operating, like, how do we get, I get to talk to great leaders like you, right? And we talk about these operating principles and then how do we get those to like elementary or middle school kids? Like, how do we get those concepts earlier into our culture and society? So it's a really great question. Um, it's actually, I mean, it's been very fun for me seeing my daughter um, who's six. So she's uh, in kindergarten um, and about to go into first grade um, at school and seeing, so certainly the experience of school and she goes to school in San Francisco, um, but the, the experience of school that she's having compared to what I had as a kid is very different. There is a huge amount of kind of affirmation to the kids that, that they can learn. Um, this, the, like that growth mindset thing I mentioned, um, that's something I've thought about for years. I was actually pretty blown away that on the first couple of weeks of school, my daughter came home and told me what the growth mindset was. Um, I, maybe her school is, is unique in that regard, but that's something I think all school kids like should know. Um, and uh, the, the number one way I think school? we can, uh, She is not, she's at a private school, but um, I, the, the public school on my block um, where uh, we have neighbors, friends, and I've, I've gone in and, and helped with a few of their events do exactly the same thing, like same materials that, that my daughter's school uh, uses. So um, that's awesome. I do think it is a very important uh, thing to, to emphasize when folks are setting out on the learning journey that everyone has. I love it because you know, I'm not there yet. I just have what happened to me 32 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> and that seems pretty, pretty, I mean, there just wasn't any conversation about it. I mean, there, it was just, here's what, here's the basics that we know in math. Here's the basics that we know in science. G good luck. Right. You know? Right. Uh, and the art teacher who said, oh, that, that picture's terrible. So you're never going to be an artist. <laughs> <laughs> I left art and then went into like the, uh, like the drama club thing because it was more, more interesting to be honest with you, like I had to do uh, like a monologue. I was really, really shy. And so I figured, okay, if I go over there and they forced me to do a monologue or something uh, that I would do, you know, that would help me on my growth. And it, that, it that's did, cool. I guess. I actually had a very similar experience. Um, I had a particular teacher, um, one of my languages teachers, um, and she noticed, I guess, that I was a bit shy about mostly about speaking in a foreign language, to be clear. I don't know that I was particularly shy in English, but she made me go to um, the kind of like speech and drama club. Made is a strong word, but strongly encouraged. And that actually has been a very formative experience for me because the ability to speak uh, with very little preparation was something we practiced there. 
the ability to act and kind of like have a bit of confidence in, uh, in yourself, I have found quite important in both like as a manager, how I, um, you know, just work with people in a one-on-one setting, but also being confident enough to get up and talk to a big team and uh, answer questions that might be pretty tough questions um, off the cuff. Um, and again, just like we were talking about with art or science or math, or whatever, um, it is something where practice really helps. And, uh, and it certainly has sort of helped me do what I do today. Yeah, I noticed when like I did like 50 talks last year in person. And then since wow. the COVID stuff, I haven't been doing talks. And I, I remember like, you know, look, three years back, I had done like virtually no talks in person, like one or two. And uh, looking at once you get into that routine of like going on the stage and going to the different city and then speaking, and you get com- you get so incredibly comfortable with, with getting to talk to complete large audiences of strangers. And I think the thing that's helped me most or the thing that built my confidence from being so shy and quiet is I, I put myself through or I, or I found myself in difficult situations in life. And those, those were opportunities to get to know who I am. And so I just became really confident in like who I am as an individual and knowing myself and knowing that sometimes I'm up and sometimes I'm down or sometimes I go through these patterns where I'm more interested in these certain topics. And, you know, there was times getting to know myself where I tried to fight that and be like, no, I'm just going to be this one thing. I'm just going to go a mile deeper. And then there's times where I realized, you know, there's this balance that I have to achieve within myself. And so when I step back and look at life, I'm this continuous journey of getting to know myself and understand myself that allows me to interact with other people in a more fluid sense. Yeah, that's, that's really awesome. I, people often ask me what my management style is. Um, and in, I was probably first asked this like 15 years ago and I tried to answer the question literally. I was like, well, I do this and this and this. Um, and that's, that was all true, but if people ask me that today, the answer I give is adaptive. And I know that doesn't sound very interesting, but it's true. Like I, I really, over time, just as you described, spent time introspecting on what is the what is the right way to engage and use, and meter my own energy and my own passions in all the different ways. So, um, yeah, great observation. Yeah, so introspection has provided you a lot of benefit in your experience. It, it certainly has, and it was not something that came naturally. Um, I think, uh, so I, I grew up in Ireland, um, for, it wasn't a particularly introspective culture. Um, I did a lot of the stuff we were talking about, you know, speech and drama stuff, which never really invites you to look into yourself. It's more kind of looking outwards. Um, but through the first maybe five years of being a manager in particular, I realized I'm encouraging folks that I work with to introspect. I should do more of that myself. And it's, it's been very valuable. Yeah, you know, I find that too. I find that sometimes I'll hear myself talking and I'm saying, am I talking to this person or am I talking to myself? Because like the advice that's applicable to them is the same thing that maybe I should be working on. It's not all the time, but sometimes you just, the, that that sleepy process that's in the back of your mind that's running autonomously will kick up and say, hey, this is a hook. This is one of those moments where you need to actually implement that advice in your own life. Right. I love cool. it. I, I love it. I love talking about life. I love getting weird. Are there any questions like you do a lot, you get to do a lot of interviews and talks. Are there any questions that you wish people asked? Um, well, right now I get asked a lot. So you mentioned you haven't done a lot of um, talks since COVID and like our regular schedule is kind of um, 
changed up from that as well. But I've spent quite a lot of time talking with other CTOs recently, and I guess we've spent a lot of time talking about how all of our various different companies are responding to COVID. Um, and at Stripe, you know, all the stuff that I just talked about, about uh, you know, really paying attention to how we're working has, has really worked very strongly for us. So we have been, uh, we, we invested last year um, uh, a tremendous amount in setting up um, a remote hub. So um, we had been building offices uh, as hubs for Stripe product development around the world for um, another, I don't know, six to nine months before that. Um, so today our engineering offices, if we're not all working from home in the, the current COVID environment, are uh, San Francisco, Seattle, Dublin, Singapore as hubs around the world. And then we've got some smaller offices across the US and internationally. Um, Remote engineering has been a big part of the culture at Stripe since the early days. Um, and I think we first came to that because there were just people that were particularly talented that we wanted to bring to Stripe and they were not in the Bay Area. Um, and so some very early engineering hires were remotes and we, we did a lot in the, in the culture to make that work well. So for instance, the document-based culture I talked about earlier, to some extent, came about to help folks who are not physically in the room be able to follow along and be part of a discussion. So we also, when Stripes have a discussion, maybe in the corridor or um, in a one-on-one -on -one setting, we'll tend to uh, exercise what we call email transparency. So we'll actually send a note about that to the team mailing list so that folks who are not physically co-present can, can follow along. So there was a lot in our culture already. Um, Exactly a year ago, so it was May last year, we decided to start treating our remote um, population um, just like we do a hub office that we were trying to stand up. Because there was a lot of work that we did um, to get those off the ground. So in particular, we would appoint a site lead. Um, we would make sure that folks from the leadership team were traveling there a lot to help you know, share information and make sure that there was good connectivity uh, with the team and the rest of the company. We would also do events with the local community, um, which obviously was both to let folks know Stripe is here and we can help you use Stripe, but also for, for hiring purposes as well. Um, and in retrospect, it seems kind of obvious, but it didn't occur to us, to me, um, until a year ago that we should think of remote just as another hub. And so we, we did that a year ago um, and we appointed a site lead and we've been really leaning into uh, making remote uh, even more successful at Stripe. And it's been, I think, very successful for us. So. Um, over the past year, we have three times as many remote uh, stripes as we had a year ago. Um, it's now 22% of our engineers that are remote, which means that other than um, San Francisco, it is our kind of biggest office, if you think of it that way. Um, and those same things I talked about turned out to be super valuable for this, uh, this population of stripes. Um, having a site lead who can actually go talk to people um, and understand what's working well and what's not working so well, connect the patterns, see the themes, build the systems that help um, has, has been tremendously valuable. And some things that have come out of that include, um, we, we now have really good guidelines for what AV equipment you should use. Um, we have a bunch of norms now around um, team Slack channels. So most team Slack channels now have a kind of social channel alongside the, the main work channel. Um, where folks can connect as human beings and, and stay in touch with, with how each other are doing. Um, we also have, um, we've kind of learned from our remotes that 
not every meeting needs to be a meeting. <laughs> you know, you can work in a document at the same time and make a tremendous amount of progress um, when you're collaborating and you're maybe talking in, in, in a Slack channel, but actually working on a, on a document together. So that's been really valuable for us in, uh, in really making remote work great at Stripe. It's been extremely valuable for us as we pivoted uh, the whole company uh, for working from home uh, in the current COVID environment. So really a, a tremendous number of the tools and systems that we had set up because of the, having the remote hub um, have, have been extremely valuable there. Um, and this culture of like talking to people and seeing what's working well and not working so well has been, has been pretty remarkable. So we've been doing weekly pulse surveys since um, everyone uh, went remote at Stripe. Um, and the data that we hear back from folks is actually quite different to what I might have expected before we kick this all off. Um, so we survey on things like, how would you rate your connectedness to your team? Um, and how would you, you rate your productivity um, in your current environment? And right away, so early March, when we all went to, to, to working from home, um, the initial results were quite surprising. So the initial results for connecting this to the team were actually the majority of people felt either about as connected as they did before or more connected. Um, and that has just been monotonically improving over time. So it's now the case that the significant majority of folks at Stripe feel more connected to their teams in this environment where folks are working from home uh, than they did before. I think that's pretty remarkable and it's not what I expected. Now, there's also a sizable group of folks that, that we work hard to really um, enable and support, and we listen very carefully to their feedback, um, that feel less connected. And, and there's a lot of work to do still to, to, to have the right, the right setup to, to make this work better. Um, when it comes to productivity, again, right on the very first week that we were doing this, and I, I mean, frankly, I think a year ago, this would have been extremely challenging for Stripe, but because we had gone through the process of really standing up a first class citizen remote hub and then taking those patterns and applying them to the rest of the org. Um, we find that right out of the gate, the majority of people were either more or about the same level of productivity self-reported um, as, as before. And again, we've seen that monotonically increase over time. So it's, it's been a great experience over the past year um, in enabling our remotes and growing our, our remote population. And then it has stood us in, in remarkably good stead for, for what's going on right now. For this remote hub thing, did you talk with other CTOs or other CTOs doing that? Have you shared this with them? Yeah. So um, again, uh, uh, we really believe in like learning from others' experience. So before we do anything major like this at Stripe, we'll tend to go out and try to talk to as many other companies as we possibly can who may have seen similar things to us before and try to learn from their experience. Um, before we before we did this, as I mentioned, we did already have a bunch of uh, a relatively large number of remote stripes. So it wasn't the case of like we were making a decision of are we going to do this at all or not. But we did want to figure out what we could do to make it as effective as possible. So we talked to the uh, to people who work at fully remote companies, um, companies like Automatic who build WordPress, um, and GitLab which is fully remote, um, and also some earlier stage companies like uh, Coda um, that's fully remote. Oh, I know Coda. Um, Are you kidding? Matt, do you just you just tickled my brain from the past? <laughs> I'm sorry to interrupt. I was like, Coda. I used to love them. 
Yeah, well, yeah. they are a fully remote company. And they actually, I think it's pretty valuable for their product because their product is all about helping people collaborate in, the, in those ways. So the point is like, there are a lot of folks who thought hard about this. And we, we tried to both learn from their experience and figure out what would transfer um, well to Stripe. Um, we also talked to companies that were not doing this to understand like why were they not doing it and make sure that we didn't feel like we were going to hit any, uh, any rocks in the road. Um, but we, we ultimately, of course, decided that we were going to do this. I think some of the most important lessons that we've learned are, um, and I think this could be a particular interest to um, folks thinking about what they're going to do as the COVID restrictions start to relax. We were in a mixed model, right? So a lot of, a lot of CTOs I'd talk to would say, hey, it's great if the whole company's remote, and it's great if the whole company is kind of office-centric, but in between is, is harder, and it is for sure. Um, but we're obviously working hard to make that work. Um, one of the things that we've noticed is it really is the case that one is the loneliest number. So if you're a single remote uh, engineer or designer or whatever your, your, your job is, working with um, a team that is primarily based in offices, they may not even all be in the same office, but in offices, then the burden tends to fall on that person to be the, the kind of momentum to shift the way the team works, even with a tremendous amount of organizational support. So we just don't do that. We make sure that um, teams that have um, remote uh, members are at least half remote um, uh, as much as we possibly can. And we've also stood up some, a, a large number in fact, of entirely remote teams um, so that the, the way that they work is, um, it, it is kind of tuned to the way everyone um, uh, will, will kind of most benefit from. Um, we've also really found that investing in tools and communication norms is important. So I mean, one example of tools, um, one of the things that I heard from someone in another company was, but well, we were kind of like really, really worried about um, having lots of remotes because we still depend on all getting together in a room when there's a crisis, so incident response. Um, and we were still doing some of that at Stripe uh, before we, we started our remote hub. Um, but we really put a lot of investment into tooling for um, incident management. So today, if something happens that we need to respond to as an emergency, um, people at Stripe can press one button and it stands up a, uh, a virtual war room. So a set of Slack channels with tools to help with collaboration. Um, and I mean, I don't really know what the counterfactual is. Maybe we would have built that anyway, but we definitely built it because of hearing some of these insights um, and that, and we use it kind of as our primary mechanism for doing these things because of hearing some of those insights. Um, and that's been valuable. Um, and communication norms, um, I mentioned already, like having a doc that you're collaborating in. Um, one of the things that, that has been, I think, pretty valuable uh, is, comes from treating the, the remote population as a hub is having uh, leadership Q&As with the team um, where um, we're just trying to create really transparent two-way communication. Um, that is something that we started doing over Zoom. So I mean, if, if, if I would visit an office other than my home office, we typically like, you know, get everyone together in a room and you know, have a little bit of spiel of what's, what's going on right now, but then you know, answer questions. Um, it turns out you can do that just as effectively over Zoom. Um, you can have a 100 person Zoom meeting. Um, you can shepherd questions in a Slack channel so that everyone's not interrupting each other and kind of agree who's gonna go next to ask their question and have a really high bandwidth, large conversation. Um, and so we started doing some of those things for our remotes. 
Um, and now that the whole company is, is working remote, we've started doing that at a company-wide level. So um, our company Q&A, which uh, John and Patrick, our, our, our co-founders, run each week, is now really kind of a big um, rallying point and sort of like focal point of the week. I love it. It's probably my favorite meeting of the week. Um, and uh, again, we kind of learn some of those techniques through, through making the, the remote group super effective. I want to respect your time here because I know that you've got a, a hard stop at the top of the hour. So is there anything else that, that you want to get out or that we didn't cover that you want to talk about before well, we wrap I mean, up? Just, just, uh, just thinking and reflecting on what we were talking about around remotes. Um, I think a really what's top of mind for me is so, so what's next for our remote hub. It is, it's actually the, the one year anniversary of doing this this week. Um, and we're, we're going to publish um, some lessons learned uh, pretty soon. Um, but we're working really hard to now scale it even further. Um, so we, we're increasing the number of countries um, that we are able to hire um, remote engineers and, and other functions in. Um, and we're going to be investing a lot in that. And the thing that I kind of want to share here is like the, the heart of this is, is pretty cool. So um, we decided to take engineering and product development international because it was so important for us to be close to our users. I talked about our users first operating principle. Um, and what we have seen is that we have, we have genuinely built products that we may not otherwise have built because we've had folks that are deeply connected to um, what's necessary to, to make a business successful in this economic infrastructure space in every country. Um, so for, for example, the way that we built FPX, which is a bank payment system in Malaysia, um, as a really kind of deeply capable uh, set of features, probably would not have happened if we hadn't had engineers in Singapore. Um, and the way that we have implemented um, stuff for folks in Mexico probably wouldn't have happened if we hadn't had engineers on the ground talking to uh, those businesses and understanding the real pain that they had in Mexico City. And I think, so, that was, that was kind of consistent with our original thesis. The thing that's been really interesting from my perspective is as we've had remote engineers across the US and Canada and, and in other places, it's not just a country by country cultural thing that matters. Um, when we've hired in some of the existing um, tech hubs around the country, we tend to, we tend to you know, end up hiring folks that are great who have come from either the startup community or very large established companies. It turns out there are way more engineers working in companies of all shapes and sizes all across the US, all across many countries around the world. And those companies can also benefit from Stripe's products and do benefit from Stripe's products. And actually hiring folks from uh, cities outside of you know, what we might've previously thought of as, as the beaten track has been really valuable in bringing insights about how those kinds of companies, those kinds of communities need to work and interact. Um, and this genuinely made our products um, and our, the way we think about our products better. So I'm extremely bullish on being able to hire folks with a really diverse set of experiences because we no longer have location as the number one kind of like selection criteria. And it's like a self-selection filter. Um, and, and I think that that's been quite remarkable from my perspective. No, it completely makes sense to have people available in the communities that you're serving so that you're really closely bound with them. David, we did it. 
Joel, thank you. This was a lot of fun. Um, and uh, I learned some stuff from you. So thank you very much. Yeah, I love good conversation. And then, you know, maybe on the beginning of next year, or the next time I'm out in San Francisco, after all the travel stuff, uh, stop by and say hello next time I'm out there. Awesome. Thank you. I, I really enjoyed it. And I hope you have a great day. You too. Talk soon, David. Thanks. Bye.